Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Sacred City Vision Drip. It's good to have you with me today as uh, we are going to talk about some ideas that um, have essentially spilled over from our sermon series going through the Gospel of John. There's, there's a lot of things um, that I really love about the way that we um, set up our our sermon series. Um, and, and there's nothing really ingenious about it. I think this is the way that the Bible is meant to be handled. Um, but in going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, through entire uh, books of the Bible, instead of just jumping around, I know some churches use lectionaries, which it, it'll jump you in. There's some advantages to it where you've got an Old Testament, New Testament, and a gospel reading. And you kind of, the pastor gets to pick and choose um, based on the thematic and, and sort of like the, the um, pre-structured um, liturgical calendar. And so um, it, usually you don't get to see theology developed. And I think that's one of the things that I really, really appreciate. And every time that we preach through a, a entire book of the Bible, I, I get to see how, like specifically like a, a New Testament epistle, how the theology of be it the Apostle Paul or Peter is developed and worked out. You kind of get a look into the mind of that person. Now, it's of course, it's it's all the Word of God. It's not just their mind, but it is God-breathed words that God has channeled through uh, man. And we get to see how logic works. We get to see how reasoning works. We get to see how, because this is true, and we know this in the Old Testament, and this has been revealed to us in Christ, therefore this, it's, it's this development of theology that I think is really profound and, and beautiful. And and actually one of the things that I love about it, that I just could geek out about it all the time, is seeing once you've you've gotten get into like for John, for example, once you get into the mind of the Apostle John and you see why he says the things he says and makes the connections he makes. Not only do you see it internally with those uh, th- those writings, you can see how there are other connections made. Uh, for example, John, of course, he wrote First, Second, and Third John later epistles. Um, so you got the Gospel of John, which is a, a gospel account, and then you have First, Second, Third John, which are epistles, and you see a lot of the thematic overlap that happens. And then, of course, you've got the Book of Revelation, which John was also responsible for writing as well. And so you see a lot of these themes, um, or, or even, here, let me let me back up even a step further. In the Gospel of John, you have the prologue, so uh, the first handful of verses in John chapter 1, which basically, if you take those and explode them out, is, is how you get the rest of God, John's Gospel. Um, and so you see this internal connection, and then you see the internal connections within his own writing, and then you start to see some of the, the more broad, sweeping connections that are made. So even in, in, in the book of Genesis, you see how uh, the play of light and dark, John uses that. Why? Because it's, it's part of the Old Testament. It's part of the Old, Old Testament canon, um, specifically the, the creation account, which um, it, it's interesting. In one sense, you have Genesis, which is the creation account, and then John 1 is the account of the recreation of the cosmos through the incarnate word. And so it's just fascinating to me. Uh, I love that. I could I could talk for, I've already talked three minutes, and I wasn't anticipating talking that much about it already. But you can see what I'm saying here. It's it's really fascinating. It's very exciting. I think that's one of the best parts like uh, of Bible reading is first is, is learning sort of the language of the Bible, starting to kind of make your way through it and make connections and get some of like the first pass things that you, you know, when you start reading the Bible, these big things that pop out at you. And then the second, third time you read, or even through 
through the book, a, a book of a Bible, you're able to catch more and more and more, and you start to see these connections. I think it's this, this glorious thing. And um, the reason why I bring that up is because as we've been making our way through the Gospel of John, um, we have consistently been confronted um, in direct and indirect ways with the doctrine of election. And usually, and and this was a a part of my sermon on Sunday, talking about the doctrine of election, and and we see um, the prophecy of Isaiah that God chose to harden some people's hearts or blind them, and others he he has drawn to himself. That's God's prerogative. Um, So we saw that there. But we've also seen it in other other places where, for example, um, in John, I believe it's John chapter 6, where uh, it, it references it's the Father who draws people to himself. It's not us who are enticed and sort of come to God on our own volition. It is God who draws us. Jesus said it, it, um, they're drawn to me. Um, it's not people who are on their own activity being drawn, but the Father drawing people to himself uh, in seeing the glory of God and cross. And one of the things that I didn't have the time to connect um, is this idea of of election. And and let me say this. This is one of the things that a lot of people, when you... Um, so we are unashamedly a, a, a Reformed church, Calvinistic in our theology, um, which means that um, the acronym TULIP is something that, that we hold on to. And, and of course, there, there are some variations on that. And I don't want to get in the weeds on that today. Um, but one of of the uh, significant pieces of, of TULIP is um, you have the T, which stands for total depravity. Um, you have the U, which is unconditional election. You have the L, which is limited atonement. You have the I, which is irresistible grace, and the P, which is the pers- perseverance of the saints. And so all of these things, um, and, and I and you, you might know them as Calvinistic, um, based on the works and writings and theology of uh, the reformer John Calvin. Um, he was the one who co- kind of coined that. Um, and all of these things, all of the, the, these pieces of the acronym have, have profoundly scriptural basis uh, that has led him to kind of collect these theological pieces and framework to help us understand uh, the glory of God and, and God's role in salvation and, and who we are as, as Christians. Um, and so you see all of these things. So for example, total depravity, you can see this in, in the sense that um, unless God draws somebody to himself, um, we will not come. Um, that's because our, our hearts are bent towards sin. Um, that's part of our human nature as as sons and daughters of the the first father, Adam, who failed in the garden, and through him, sin entered in the world. And so we have this corrupted state in our human nature. Though we still bear the image of God, um, our hearts are bent away from God, and so it's the total depravity. It does not mean that we are as depraved as possible, but it does mean that we are so depraved that we cannot, on our own volition, come to know God. And so this is one of the big uh, the big differences between um, Calvinistic theology, Reformed theology, and the Arminians who thought, well, no, God, God has enabled us that if we so choose to, and, and it really puts an emphasis on the choice of the individual, whether or not they're going to make the move towards God. But if you look at Ephesians chapter 2, it says, you are dead in your sins and trespasses. How can dead people come to God? How can dead people move? They can't. Um, and so this was actually a huge debate 
um, in the 16th century um, and, and, and is really a defining thing that I think is an essential um, for understanding the rest of TULIP. Um, you have the, the unconditional election, which means that God chooses who he wants. So we saw um, in Romans chapter 9, God, God can harden Pharaoh's heart if he so desires. Um, the potter can do what he wants with the lump of clay. For some, he can destine for honor. For some, he can destine for dishonor. And so God has this unconditional election, which is not based on our own merit, um, which is one of the things that the Apostle Paul points to in Romans chapter 9. It's not because we have earned it or deserved or merited his mercy, but God has, uh, based on his own prerogative, decided to choose some and not choose others. And then you have L, limited atonement, which just speaks to the fact that um, all who Jesus died for... um, So here... In John three sixteen, when you read, "For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son," the 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 word "world" is actually pretty pretty widely contested. It, it's debated about what what exactly is the world that uh, Paul is talking about. Because if you read Scripture, you see the world. Um, talked about in several different ways. You have cosmos, which is is the created world. You have the world in the sense of uh, the fallen nature and the the trajectory of humankind that's been influenced by sin. You, you talk about the world as the collection of all people. You can have the world, which is a collection of a specific group of people. Um, and and even the world where the Apostle Paul says, um, he says the gospel is bearing fruit in all the world. Well, when he says that, that's a, a limited view of the world because at that point the gospel had not made it over to North America as far as as we know or our history tells us. So there are different variations, but but the idea of this is that um, I would say it like this: that G, not one single drop of Jesus's blood was shed in vain. Every drop that Jesus's Jesus blood that was shed uh, was purposed for saving a specific person, the elect. So that, that's talking about the limited atonement. So that's there are some people that Jesus died for, and there, there are others who Jesus did not die for because the, ultimately God knew, um, because he elected um, unconditional election, that he um, would would not um, bring others into the kingdom of heaven. Um, so that brings us to L, that was limited to him. I, irresistible grace being the fact that, that if God has chosen to save a person, he will present himself, he will reveal himself in such a way that he cannot be denied. Be denied. Excuse me. God cannot be mocked. So if, if God, let's say, for example, God um, sent Jesus to die for the sins and make it merely available, as Arminians seem to suggest, God makes it available for all the world. And then um, you have people, God makes a presentation all right, here, I've paved the way for you. It's up for you to decide if you want to go down this route or not. And somebody says, yeah, you know what? I'm, uh, I'm not that interested. I'll pass. Thanks for the gesture, but I'll pass. Now that, that, that would be, to, I think that is, uh, that is a presentation of a, a weak savior. Somebody who says, well, I, I did all this work. I, I made this plan. I did this. I followed through on it. But at the end of the day, it boils down to the personal decision. And, uh, you know, I, I don't want to override people's, uh, Autonomy, and so uh, that—that's part of the Ar- Ar- Arminian school of thought, which I think is um, not represented in the Bible, and so I think it's something that we should denounce. Um, but it also shows Jesus to be a very weak savior, and also the fact that that if we have this ability to turn God away, um, 
and, and say no or to choose him and say yes? What's to say that we we wouldn't uh, eventually if we get going with Jesus and then we realize, okay, I, I put my hand to the plow, but the, the work is hard. I, maybe I don't want to do this anymore. And they have people following away. And so when when, when God um, chooses people and, and actually applies the work of redemption to them, um, his grace is irresistible. When when God reveals himself to that person, that elect person who was foreknown before the foundations of the earth, that he would save them through the work of his son, they cannot deny God. God will not be mocked. Um, and so that's what irresistible grace is about. And then piggybacking off of that, what I was talking about of, of the opportunity, you know, the, the, the idea that you can choose and say yes to God and then eventually follow, follow away. Um, this brings us to the perseverance of the saints that, that whoever, you know, it's that passage that whatever God starts, he's going to finish. God began a good work, work on you, in you. And I know that he will bring it to completion. And so that's just saying that whatever, whatever, um, God does. And you see this even with Jesus in the, in the good shepherd passage, where um, he says, not a single one of my my sheep can be snatched out of my hands. Okay, so all of these things, and, and I would argue that um, the Apostle John is a Calvinist. Okay, um, the, the Apostle John is a Calvinist. You see this very very clearly through his writing, and and it's not at all a stretch to see these connections. It's just later on, John Calvin, in the development of theology, looks back at Scripture, and this is why we say we're reformed. We're, we're reformed and always reforming according to the Word of God. So we go back to the Word of God, of which the Apostle John contributed to, and his theology informs our our Calvinistic or our reformed view of of Scripture. So I, I would joke and say that John, the Apostle John, was a Calvinist before, long before John Calvin was a Calvinist, and so the, that this idea of Calvinist just means that we we take God's word for what it is. We believe the scriptures. We're not trying to explain it away. Um, even in the times where it stretches our mind, um, it stretches, I mean, even pushes on our emotions because I, I think a passage or even the idea of election, people want to walk into that way more um, emotionally than they do want to think about it logically. And it can put a sour taste in people's mouth, which I think is, is you just totally miss the point. Um, I, I think when you read the Bible and you see things like Romans 9, you see um, Ephesians 2, you see Ephesians 1, you see um, John 10, the good shepherd, you see John, uh, even John 12, the the doctrine of election actually is a glorious thing. And, and this is one of the things that I, I want to um, press on today um, and, and helping people. Because I, I mentioned, you know, like um, when we were going through that passage, Saying, "Hey, it, this is a hard. This is a hard statement to wrestle with for us, um, because it says, okay, um, some people denied Jesus, and this was to f- fulfill the scripture. Which, and then you've got a couple passage of of Isaiah, um, one that's talking about um, the Lord's hand being revealed. Um, so, so that's just mean the servant of the Lord, the arm of the Lord, the extension of the Lord, who is Jesus, being revealed. Um, it was up to God to determine who would actually see that. And then we see actually further on, and even more challenging is like that that it was God who blinded. It was God who 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 deafened their ears so they couldn't hear. And so you see this, and, and even with the story of Pharaoh, you see that there's this hardening. Pharaoh is able to harden his heart, but at the same time, God is able to harden his heart as well. And, and so you see the sovereignty of God in election, um, in giving people desires. Like we we cannot desire God um, by ourselves. That that ha- that desire has to be placed within us. And when we hear the gospel. Um, 
that is one of the means in which God reveals himself to us um, in, in a way that we would want to actually desire him. Um, and so that's why evangelism is so important. Like if you want to do evangel- evangelism and you're trying to convince people why why they need to desire God, I don't, I don't think you're going to be very successful because human nature says, I don't need God. I don't, I don't, I don't see him as glorious. I don't see him um, as I ought to see him. And so you're, you're kind of, uh, you're just, it's, it's sort of a futile effort, which is why the work of evangelism is primarily proclamation of, of sharing the good news and not trying to pander to um, the needs or, or the, the uh, perceived needs of each person. Now, that's not to say that we, there's not direct application of the gospel to certain people's parts of their lives, but, but we are, are primarily focused on the proclamation um, more so than the application in certain evangelical or, uh, yeah, evangelical settings, evangel- evangel- evangelistic, that's what I'm trying to say. So, tying this back here, um, helping us see that the doctrine of election, of election is a demonstration of the glory of God. What I want for you and what I want for our whole church is, is that when we are coming face to face with uh, wherever we're confronted by the doctrine of election, that when we look at it, we don't we don't bristle, but instead we we receive it as it is. And one of the places that helps us understand um, what the doctrine of election is is in Ephesians chapter one. Um, it frames it up for us. It's very clear. And and, and here's one of the things that'll happen, um, especially as you interact with more liberal liberal theologians um, and people who maybe are more bent towards the Arminian view of things. They, they want to over-explain things away. The problem with that is that it's, it's, it's laid out too clearly, too often, that God is sovereign and He has elected, He has predestined, He has foreordained. And so one of the things that they'll try to get into is trying to explain things away and say, well, this is actually what it means, that God looked down the corridor of time and, and he saw who was going to decide, uh, he saw who was going to choose him, and therefore then he went back into real time or back into the foundations of the earth. And then he, he you know, based on those decisions, then he moved things around to, to get that, that, that is a man-centered theology. And I think this is one of the big things that we're going to see pitted against each other here between the Arminian sort of uh, de- decision is which is based on my decision to follow Jesus or my ability to come to God on my own prerogative, and the more Reformed Calvinistic view of the doctrine of election, where it is God who gives us desires, it's God who draws us, it's God who moves, and you can go through the ordo salutis of, of all the things that God that God does in our salvation without any of our help, that it's, it's monergistic, that God has, has done the work for us, He has created the ability for us to see Him, to see His his glory to believe in him and to walk in faith. And so um, th- I think this is the collision here between a man-centered theology and a God-centered theology, a, a decision-based theology of, of, well, it's God has laid the path for me and it's up to me to decide if I'm going to go down this path or that path. Now, I, I don't want to, um, th- there, there's some there's some um, side trails here that I'd like to take, but I want to try to keep it um, simple because because this will work it out itself out a little bit differently in in your daily life decisions as far as you know do I 
Um, do I take this job or do I take that job? Do I, I marry this person or do I marry that person? And so there are decisions that we make. God's sovereignty and man res- man's responsibility never gets pitted against one, e- one another. But I think that's one of the things that, that the Arminian camp tries to do is like, well, um, it, it puts a, a high value on human autonomy. And in doing so, it degrades the sovereignty of God. And so you need a theology that, that actually um, acknowledges both as Scripture puts them forth forth and doesn't compete with one another and you try to make one subjective to the other. Now, God's sovereignty, because God is sovereign, he is the sovereign. God is sovereign over all things. But in this decisionism theology, this Arminian school of thought, you have people that are, the emphasis is placed on, you just need to make a decision. You today need to make a decision um, to put your faith in Jesus. And it's like, if you're telling somebody to do that, who doesn't have the ability to do that, that is uh, that is not going to go well. Um, you can call people to repentance and put a call out there, but but to say all you need to do is make this decision. There have been a lot of people who have made that uh, air quote decision, and it turns out that that they're you know you go to the parable of the four soils, and and you find out that they're they're more like one of the first three soils instead of the good soil where it actually takes root. Where maybe there's a little bit of change, but eventually there's this falling away because the conversion wasn't legitimate because God hadn't actually put that desire in their heart uh, to to honor Christ as Lord. So this this school of thought has it's a very much a man-centered theology and I think there's a lot of emotionalism that plays into it. I think there's a lot of um, just because if if God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, his ways are not our ways and we come to a, a sort of like a, a crossroads where it's like here's something that the scripture says but I don't quite understand um, and to in my, from my point of view, um, it doesn't sound fair. It doesn't seem right. It doesn't seem just. Then, then I'm going to try to maybe would uh, s- s- shimmy out of that kind of a view and adopt more of a man-centered view, which I think is is what I I don't I I don't want anybody to move in that direction because the chief end of man is to glorify God. Like like the whole point of this world, the reason why things exist, the reason why husbands are to love their wives and wives submit to their husbands and parents train up their children in the fear and admonition of the Lord and and for us to go out and build businesses and plant churches and start missional communities and 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 nonprofits and build schools and the whole point of all of that is to glorify God. The whole point of that is for God's glory, that he would be glorified. In fact, that 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 was really um, I guess I'm thinking back to our our marriage conference, and that, that was one of the, the things that um, uh, our guest Michael Clary laid out was that you know if if you go back to Genesis one, um, just one and two before the fall of the world, the whole thing existed for the glory of God. The whole thing, if if the fall never came, what we would be left with is worshippers of God doing the things that God told us to do in a way that magnified the glory by tending to uh, the work that He's put before us. And so what I'm trying to get to here um, is, is this man-centered theology definitely puts man over God, um, specifically in our choice to follow him or our choice to deny him. Um, but then when you read the scriptures, you see all kinds of other things. And now the emotional part of that is I don't think it's fair. I don't like it. And so I'm going to kind of just push it off. I see this often. Um, and that to me exposes just a, a lack of understanding. Now, I think um, we can... I think that we can maybe hash this out a little bit more by asking the question of this. Who, um, 
in which scenario is God more glorified? In which scenario does God receive more glory and praise? In the situation where God lays out the path and then you are um, sort of at your own choosing are able to walk down that path, um, yes or no to Jesus, you know, who, and even in that situation, who, who gets, who gets the glory in that? Um, yeah, God gets the glory for, for making the way, but I get the glory for making the right choice. Now, um, th- this is one of the things it's like getting back to, uh, the grace of God in Ephesians chapter two, it's like, um, by grace, you've been saved through faith. Now, if even faith is a gift itself. So the grace, the grace to, to be moved from um, separation from God to now have, have relationship, to be reconciled to God, that is a gift. But, but, but what gets you from there to there is the gift of faith, which you can't muster up in yourself. Now, and that's one of the things that, that the Arminian school of thought sort of dances around is our decision uh, essentially is equated to the mustering up of faith, right? That, that's what it puts. So that, that's very man-centered. That's me-centered. Now, uh, compare that to uh, this situation where God is the one who authors salvation. God is the one who creates the way to salvation and reconciliation. God is the one who grants the gift of faith that takes us there. Who, who, gets, who gets the glory in that situation? It's, it's, not, it's not us it's not about man. Um, in fact, salvation isn't ultimately about us. Salvation is about God and his glory. Now, this is why I want to bring you to Ephesians chapter one. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. It's one of the passages that gets after the heart of this. Um, glory in election. and election. And that's something that we need to link together. The, the doctrine of election is glorious. Listen to this, Ephesians 1, 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even, look at this, as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Okay. So let me stop there. So we see here, he chose us in him. So there's your election. He chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. So before the world was created, before Adam and Eve uh, had come into existence, God had chose us, that is the elect, in Christ before the foundation of the world. And, and, and so don't get, when you hear the word elect, don't think of, of people who are better than the non-elect. That is not at all the case, okay? Because the elect are not elect because they have accomplished something in and of themselves. If you go back to uh, Romans 9, I don't have it right in front of me, but but he actually, let me pull it up. Romans 9, uh, he, he gets after the fact that that we, um, in God's sovereign choice, this uh, in choosing who he wants, let me pull it up. Sorry, I should have had this ready. He says, um, it depends not on human will or exertion. So he's talking about salvation, uh, the reception of mercy. I will have mercy on who I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. So here, the the emphasis is placed on God. It is God's prerogative. It's God's doing. So this, this election um, is not based upon merit, which is why we talk about unconditional election. So 
the 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 elect and the non-elect both start in the same place, dead in their sins and trespasses. Okay, we all start in the same place, dead in our sins and trespasses. But the elect go on to be made alive in Christ. The unelect, the non-elect, do not. That they remain in their spiritually dead state. Um, and, and God has ordained this. God has willed this. So there are some he has chosen before the foundation of the world, those who is predestined for adoption. In fact, all he, who he chooses um, before the foundation of the earth are those who will be adopted, um, predestined for adoption through Jesus Christ. Now check this out. Here's the whole reason why. This is why election exists. He says, he, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So here, the, the Apostle Paul, he, he's not troubled by this. He, he doesn't look at the doctrine of election and say, that's icky, I don't like it. Uh, it doesn't sit well with me. I, I don't like how it squares up emotionally with me. It, it puts a, a, a yucky feeling in my tummy. He, he doesn't do that. He says, the doctrine of election is beautiful because if there is no doctrine of election, there's salvation for nobody. That, that's that's how he sees it. That's how we need to see it. If God doesn't choose, if God doesn't choose us before the foundation of the world, if he doesn't predestine us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, then nobody, like, like heaven will be empty. All it will be is God and his angels and whatever other creatures he wants, right? And so the reason why the doctrine of election is so glorious is because heaven is filled by it. That, that the only kind of people who are going to be in heaven are those who God has elected, that he has chosen. And so it's not of our own doing, it's God's prerogative. And he does this to show us the grace. This is this is why in, in Romans 9, when, um, I, again, it, it's a hard thing, and, and, I, and this, to me, it looks like when... when um, when the Apostle Paul's laying this out in Romans 9, he, he's kind of wrestling with this as well. Um, when he says, um, he says, what if God, so it's almost like he's, he's speculating, what if God, and I, I think his speculations are on course here, what if God, and, and this, okay, I say that, and people might come out with me, oh, this is the Word of God. Yes, it is the Word of God, but it, yes, it is, yes. So, what if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessel of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. So, even there, you see the doctrine of election. There's some he, he's going to bless with his, his mercy, and some that will receive the uh, 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 the just distribution of his wrath, but the reason why God has both going on, the same reason why there's wheat and tares both growing up together, is one, God is, is putting a cautionary tale of, this is this is what it would be like if not for me, if not for my sovereign will, my plan in redemption. This is the story of all mankind. But to see the the marvel of God's grace in Christ, that he would save people, anyone for that matter, just say save one person, let alone um, what, what he tells Abraham, multitudes that will, are going to outnumber the stars and the grains of sand on the beach, okay? And so it's because God elects that anyone's saved. So here's, here's the deal. You can... Somebody can deny the doctrine 
of election and still be a Christian, but the reason that they're going to be saved is because the doctrine of election works, okay? <laughs> that That's crazy to me. So you can deny the doctrine of election. You can have a hard time with it, but it's still the doctrine of election that's ultimately going to bring you to glory. And and this doctrine itself is glorious. And so I think as we receive and, and, and work through the scriptures, it's important for us to see things the way God sees it. We're to think of God's thoughts after him. And God thinks that the doctrine of election is glorious because it reveals his glory in a way that determinism, the Arminianism, it can't do it. It can't do it. It, it is a, a shrunken glory uh, view of salvation, whereas the doctrine of election shows us, one, that we are truly sinners, that there's, there's in ourselves we are unable to come to God, but because God has provided uh, the sacrifice of Christ for our sins, and, and he has done that for his elect, Jesus' blood applied to his elect, that there will be people in heaven. And God will preserve us until the end, and we will forever be in glory with Jesus because God has chosen us, God has ordained it, God has planned it, God has executed it, God has applied the gospel, God sustains us, God God um, gives us strength and the ability to keep pressing on and perseverance. God does it all. To God be the glory, okay? And so as you come to the doctrine of election, that, that ought to be our refrain. To God be the glory. To God be the glory. Because this is the doctrine of God's glorious grace. I know this was a little more theological than what some of the other ones are, but I think the implications of this and our understandings of this um, has vast implications. And perhaps uh, I'll be able to make some more connections later on down the road. But for now, some to, to chew on theologically here. Um, and, and if you have questions about this, there's some great books out there. I'd love to make some recommendations. It's something worth thinking about. And just because it makes you uncomfortable, just because it, it's a hard thing to ma- wrap your mind around does not mean it's uh, not worthy of your time. In fact, I think that these things that are, are tricky um, need to be in, invest some time in them and study and, and learning and asking the Lord to, to open our eyes to see things the way he sees things, to think his thoughts after him. So, And, and I'm also really happy to sit and meet and talk about this. this is something I've, I've talked with several people over the years about because uh, I think just naturally a lot of us come from more of these Arminian backgrounds where it's up to us and our decisions to to follow Jesus. Um, and, and really what it is, is is God's sovereignty and salvation. That's the way we need to see. And because right there, we see the glory of God revealed. That's all I got for today. Love you guys. I hope you have a great rest of your week. Uh, enjoy this weather. It should be quite lovely. Um, I will see you on Sunday for worship. <laughs>